Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can meet together on this, your Sabbath day. We know that you are meeting with your people in a special way. More than usual, you are devoting your attention to your people, and we desire that your presence be with us as we open your word. We cannot rightly understand this book without divine guidance. We ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds to understand the blessing that you have for us as we study to, to, and dig into prophecy. Be with Pastor Bates as he shares with us from what he has studied. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just Amen. a note for those of you that are just logging on, there will be, uh, we are recording this, so if you have someone that wasn't able to be here, we can share that with them later. And if you have a question, we're just asking that you hold for, um, you know, hold any in-depth questions to the end, and we'll try to answer those as we have time. If you message me somewhere along the way with your question, we can, we can pick that up at the end, and I'll, I'll just go in order that I receive them. The, if you have a clarifying question along the way, such as, say that again, you, you said something about the, the King of the South was who? and you're just asking clarifying questions, raise the little blue hand on your device there, and then we'll, we'll clarify those as we go along. So, Pastor Bates, the time is yours. Okay, thank you, Pastor Chris, for having me on here. And there's just a few things that I'd like to say before we um, delve into this study. Hopefully you all can see the, the screen share of the PowerPoint, the slides that, that I'm gonna be going through. And, and as Pastor Chris said, this is going to be kind of a technical presentation. So I'm going to assume that um, hopefully the, those of you who are listening and watching have some kind of working knowledge of the book of Daniel. Uh, because Daniel 11, as you probably have figured out, is a very deep prophecy. Yeah. It's very, there's a lot of technical aspects to it. And so I'm going to do my best to try to keep this as simple as possible, but there will be some very technical points brought up and hopefully you know you can follow along and and as pastor chris said if you have a, uh, any clarifying questions throughout i'm going to trust that he'll moderate and 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 you know jump in there when need when he needs to to, to have me clarify something but um first of all i want to say that the seventh day adventist church doesn't really have a settled official interpretation of daniel 11 at this point um there are there are a handful of camps that have developed in terms of uh, certain interpretations that, that, that people have on Daniel 11. And um, I have participated in the last couple of years in some uh, group discussions, one of which was in Barron Springs, Michigan in 2018. And then I also participated in one last spring of 2019 in Las Vegas. And I will say that even though there are some differing camps as far as interpretation, in those meetings, I, for the most part, experienced a tremendous amount of collegiality between people who have different opinions. So it's not like people are, you know, it's not like we're arguing with each other and fighting with each other over this or anything. It, there's been a very strong collegial spirit between those who have differing views. And I'm going to present um, an interpretive possibility in this presentation today that I feel is consistent with the biblical text. Um, but I will say this with a little caveat. I'm not the catch meow. The, jur the jury's still out on this. We still have more study to do. And no position that anyone holds is unassailable as far as bringing up objections. It's just not there. So I want to say these things just before I begin, just so that you hear where I'm coming from. Also, this presentation that I I'll be showing you on the screen 
I'm going to go ahead after the presentation is over and I'm going to email a PDF copy of this PowerPoint to Pastor Chris. And any of you who would like it, feel free to have him send it to you. You can have all this information. I've also got a, th a master's thesis in PDF format. I've got uh, a couple of papers that I've published on the King of the South and Daniel 1140, which we're going to talk about in this presentation a, a little bit later. Um, I've got some materials that I'd be happy to send. There's no cost. I'll just sh ship them to Pastor Chris. And if you want them, just contact him and, and let him know and he'll get you whatever information you need. The whole point in having a discussion like this is to motivate people to study and, and begin to exercise their minds around this great vision because I believe that there's some beautiful things being brought out in Daniel chapter 11 and, and I believe it's timely that we're studying this now. So, all right, so let's proceed. I wanna begin um, with a suggested outline of the entire chapter. And this is, again, my personal view, which I feel squares up with the biblical text. And let me just take a minute to go down um, the various divisions of Daniel 11. So the first division we can see is in verses one and two, and this is a description of the Medo-Persian empire. Gabriel, the messenger angel, is, is having a prophetic narration with Daniel. He's having a conversation and vision with Daniel. And he basically tells Daniel that there'll be four Persian kings arising, future to his day. Then Gabriel also touches on the Greek empire, as well as the fourfold division of the Greek empire after the death of Alexander. And you find that mentioned in verses two, three, and four. Then in verses five to 15, I believe we see a, a series of conflicts that take place between two of these four Greek empires that came into being after Alexander's death. One empire is Seleucid Syria. That was a dynastic successor state that basically occupied the northern division of Alexander's former empire, as well as the region immediately north of geographic Israel in that day. And this is the first manifestation of the king of the north in Daniel 11. This uh, power fought with the southern division of Alexander's kingdom, also located south of geographic Israel at that point in history where God's covenant people were located. This is called the king of the south. Now, what makes Again, these two powers, the North and South powers, is the geographic uh, reference point of Israel. Now, we're going to see in Daniel 11 that we shift away from geography and we move more toward global and symbolic entities um, at some point as we move through, and I'll, I'll save that for a little bit later. But in verses 5 to 15, we see a series of conflicts between the king of the North at that phase being Syria and the king of the South at that phase being Egypt. Now, when we hit verse 16, I believe that this is a transitional passage that takes us into the next empire in sequence, which is the Imperial Roman Empire. And this, I believe, is described from verse 16 through to the first part of verse 30, which I will call 30a. Now, Imperial Rome is the next manifestation of the King of the North in Daniel 11, because like Seleucid Syria, it conquered God's covenant people and oppressed God's covenant people and dictated the worship activities of God's covenant people and therefore qualifies as the next king of the north in the prophecy. Because we're going to see that this is an outstanding characteristic of what constitutes a power that we might identify as the king of the north. It's not just dealing with the north as far as a geographic direction. This is a spiritual posture 
that a power can take toward God's covenant people where that power will assume the prerogatives of God. It will control the worship activities. It will persecute. It will occupy, so to speak. And that's what makes this power a king of the north. And Syria occupied those roles initially. And then when Rome ended the Seleucid dynasty in 64 BC and then conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC and then occupied that power for uh, I've already clicked my video off. Okay, so in verses 16 to the first part of 30, I believe this is a description of the Imperial Roman Empire. Now, when we hit the second part of verse 30 and go to verse 39, I believe we see the entrance of the Dark Age papacy into the narrative of Daniel 11. And again, because this power sits in a position that only God can occupy, oppressing and controlling God's covenant people, this power then becomes the next king of the north. And in verses 30 to 39, the second part of verse 30 to 39, we find a description of the Dark Age papacy. It's persecuting activities, it's rebellious character of exalting itself above God, etc. And so I believe that these verses describe the Dark Age phase of the papacy. Then when we move to verse 40 and go to verse 45, which takes us to the end of the chapter, I believe this is also a description of the papacy as the king of the north, but in the time of the end, beginning in 1798 through to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we see the second phase of the papacy at the end of time mentioned in verses 40 to 45. And then when we spill over into Daniel 12, 1, 2, and 3, we see Michael standing up. We see the time of trouble. We see God's people delivered, which is, of course, a description of the second coming of Christ. We see a resurrection from the dead in verse 2. And then in verse 3, we see the righteous, the faithful, shining as stars forever in the eternal kingdom. So what we see here, I believe, is a progression of, of, of empires and events beginning in Daniel's day with the Persian Empire and extending through history to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe this is a workable uh, suggested outline of Daniel chapter 11. Okay, now let's move on to some interpretive challenges. And I'm just going to present a summary of challenges that the Daniel 11 interpreter can, can face when trying to grapple with this great prophecy. First of all, there are a lot of personal pronouns in Daniel 11. You see he and him and his. And it can be a challenge sometimes to connect these pronouns with, with their antecedents in prior verses. And it, it can kind of get thick with trying to figure out, okay, who is the he that is being talked about in, in, in this particular verse, for example. Now, what's interesting about the pronouns, I believe in verses 1 to 29, we see the pronouns doubling as both empires and specific rulers who are acting in behalf of those empires simultaneously. For example, when you see in verse 16 of Daniel 11 how um, a power comes against Syria and, and destroys that power, and then it consumes the glorious land. This is a description of, of Rome, but it's also a description of Pompey, who was acting in behalf of Rome, in conquering the glorious land at that stage in history. So my point is, is that in verses 1 to 29, we see these pronouns acting as both empires and rulers within those empires. Now, what's very interesting is when you hit verse 30 and you start shifting into the Dark Age papacy, you really only see the pronouns describing the empires in general. You don't really see 
in my opinion, a description of specific rulers acting in behalf of those empires. You see a transition into a more general, broad um, description of empires with the personal pronouns without necessarily highlighting specific activities and events of specific rulers in those empires. So personal pronouns can be a challenge when it comes to studying Daniel 11. Now we also have a, what, what I would call a historicist challenge. How do we know for sure a specific text in Daniel 11 describes a specific historical event? Because different Daniel 11 interpreters will look at the same verse and they'll say, well, this describes this historical event, whereas another interpreter will, work, will look at the same exact verses and say, well, no, that describes this particular event. And so we face a challenge with trying to match historical events with verses. And what's interesting about the way these verses are, are written in Daniel 11 is they're very terse. They're very um, general and in some cases kind of broad. And therefore, it's possible that different historical events could fit what the text says. And so that's a challenge that the interpreter faces when addressing the, the, the uh, prophecy of Daniel 11. Now, here is the is a is a is a huge issue when it comes to understanding Daniel 11. You have the geographic literal position versus the global symbolic position. Now, the question that I have had for Daniel 11 interpreters that take a strictly geographic view all the way through the prophecy, my question is: Is does the narrative of Daniel 11 require geographic literalism all the way through? And of course, my answer to that would be no, it doesn't. Because when we look at prophecy in general, especially as we progress through Daniel's earlier visions and as we look at the visions in Revelation that John recorded, we see that as we near the close of time, this spiritual conflict that we're going to be involved in is more global and spiritual in scope as opposed to limited to just one geographic area. So I don't, I'm not convinced that Daniel 11 requires strict geography all the way through. I think and I'm going to argue this a little bit later. And when I say argue, I don't mean argue in, in the terms of being confrontational. I mean, I'm going to present the option that when the papacy enters the narrative, all geographic bets are off. We're going to start going global and spiritual and symbolic in the scope of the prophecy. But this is a huge issue in Daniel 11. Also, uh, the question of pioneer Adventism comes up as well. The question has come up, were all the prophetic positions of the pioneers infallible and without reproach? Well, I, I love the, the work of the Adventist pioneers. I, I think our pioneers were deeply spiritual people who were deep Bible students who absolutely loved to study God's word and, and God blessed their powers of investigation to give them great light. I won't go as far as to say, though, that everything that they proposed was absolutely infallible. And so this is a question that we have to grapple with when it comes to uh, Daniel 11. How about Ellen White? You know, did she have any insights into Daniel 11? Now, she made a few statements that touched on Daniel 11, and we're going to look at one uh, statement that is, is probably her most uh, her strongest statement on Daniel 11 in a little bit, but Dan but Ellen White made a, a comment here and there about it. She didn't really go into uh, to detail about Daniel 11, other than to say that, you know, the prophecy is nearly reaching its fulfillment. But um, she did make an insightful statement that will help us with um, some of the verses in Daniel 11 toward the end of the chapter. 
Now, as you probably know, uh, the main theme of the 11th chapter of Daniel is the warfare between the king of the north, which I will abbreviate as K-O-N, and the king of the south, which I will abbreviate as the K-O-S. Okay, so these are some of the interpretive challenges that um, we might face as interpreters when we look at Daniel 11. Now, I want to also um, propose some interpretive principles that I feel that we should consider that I, I feel are important in understanding when we approach the text of Daniel 11. First of all, we have to avoid being dogmatic about any particular view. We can be convinced in our minds that the text is pretty clear on a certain um, array of interpretations in Daniel 11, but I do think we need to be uh, avoiding dogmatism at all costs. And when we enter into discussions with people that see things differently than we do, we always need to maintain a, a subdued Christian spirit, a humble spirit, and we need to be respectful and collegial when we dialogue about this prophecy. Also, as most of us know, hopefully, um, we should allow scripture to be its own expositor and interpreter. Now, even though Daniel 11 is a complex vision, there are certain passages in Daniel 11 that seem to be clearer than others, and those clearer passages have textual connections outside in other parts of the book of Daniel, as well as outside the book of Daniel altogether, that can help to bring clarity on certain verses. And these clearer verses can kind of show us what empires we're in as we go through historical time through the vision. Also, one thing that I think is important that we need to remember about Daniel 11 is we need to remember the principle of typology. And I believe that the principle of typology can apply to geographic terms that describe end time apocalyptic events. Now, what I mean by typology is this. There are times in the Bible when prophetic symbols are described in geographic language. For example, Israel. Now, in Old Testament times, Israel was a geographic entity. But in New Testament times, in the New Testament dispensation, and especially in the book of Revelation, the term Israel is used to describe God's people. So the term Israel is, to, is, is understood in a typological sense. It points to a symbolic entity rather than a geographic one. And we see the same thing with Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon was a, was a geographic empire. But now in the book of Revelation, Babylon is a spiritual, symbolic entity that describes apostate religion as led by the papacy. So I think when, when it comes to grappling with some of the passages in Daniel 11, especially the last five or six verses where a lot of geographic language is used, I think we need to remember the principle of typology and be careful to make sure that we respect that principle. Now, another thing that we need to realize, too, is that there is an interpretive consistency between Daniel and Revelation. In other words, prophetic symbols in Daniel and Revelation seem to have a consistency. You see in, in Daniel beasts and heads and horns, and these all symbolize kings and kingdoms and empires. Well, in the book of Revelation, when you see beasts and horns and heads, you see a consistent meaning to them, meaning they also mean kings and kingdoms and empires in Revelation. So there is an interpretive consistency to where if, if a certain symbol means something in Revelation, it would be consistent to, to um, interpret that consistently in Daniel as well. 
You see the Son of Man in Daniel. You see the Son of Man in Revelation. You see the 1260 years, the time, times, and half a time in Daniel. You see that in Revelation. And so there are a lot of symbols that are consistent between the two books that we need to keep in mind. And that'll help us when it comes to understanding Daniel 11, verse 40. Now, the big thing that I think we need to remember about Daniel 11 is that there is a sequential consistency in terms of the historical empires mentioned between Daniel's four apocalyptic visions. When I say those four visions, I mean Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and 9, which form a single apocalypse, by the way. And then Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are also a single vision. There is a con an interpretive consistency. In other words, the repeating and enlarging principle is, is active through these four visions. They all discuss the very same historical empires, and they repeat and enlarge on details about those empires. And so because Daniel 2, 7, and 8, 9 have a consistency, we should expect Daniel 11 and the entire vision of Daniel 10 through 12 to also reveal that same consistency as far as historical empires. All right, let's see. Now, as I mentioned a little while ago, the interpretive framework for Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is based on clear textual markers. As I said earlier, when it comes to scripture, interpreting scripture, there are clearer passages in Daniel 11 that seem to show us, okay, by this time we're in this empire. And, and when this next clearer text comes, we're in this empire by this time. Um, there are some clear textual markers, which I will go over in a moment to show us um, this basic sequence of empires. I mentioned this a little while ago. Uh, there's, there is, I believe, a transition from geographic powers to global and symbolic powers. And that begins in verses 30 and 31 when the papacy actually enters the narrative of Daniel chapter 11, okay? Also, the time of the end, I believe, extends from the year 1798 to Christ's return. I believe we see that in Daniel chapter 12, verses four through nine. We see that in Great Controversy, page 356. And, and many of our pioneers understood and wrote and clearly confirmed that the time of the end began in 1798 with the deadly wound of the papacy, and it extends through to the second coming of Christ. Now, as far as uh, the king of the north versus the king of the south, one thing that I think it's important to understand is, is that, that Daniel 11 discusses three north-south conflicts. You find the first set of conflicts in verses 5 to 15, you find the second set of conflicts in verses 25 to 29, and then you find the third and final conflict in verse 40. And we'll touch on those a little bit in this presentation as we go forward. Now, here is a fascinating observation that I think, hopefully, if you love history, you'll find really, really interesting. The Old Testament relationship between Babylon, Egypt, and Judah in Daniel's day, I believe, presents an apocalyptic model that applies to the last six verses of Daniel 11 on a global typological scale. Now, let me, let me, let me explain this. When you look at how Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon interacted with Nico II of Egypt and how those two powers interacted with Judah, you will find that Daniel 11, 40 to 45, finds a, a powerful historical parallel in that relationship. And in fact, the last six verses of Daniel are a mirror to that historical relationship. And I'm gonna comment more about that as we go forward. 
And I think you'll find that very interesting. Now, when it comes to Daniel 11, there are three potentially challenging passages in this chapter. They are verses 23 to 29, verses 36 to 39, and then verse 40. Now, we're not going to look at every little passage within those difficult passages, but I am going to touch on uh, a few of those verses just for clarification so that we can build uh, a solid basis for interpreting verse 40. Now, before we address potentially challenging passages, I want to go back to this clear textual marker concept, and I want to show you how these clear markers reveal the principal empires of Daniel's apocalyptic visions, okay? So on the next slide here, we're going to look at a puzzle. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, I went on a class trip with my oldest daughter, Abigail, her eighth grade class trip, and we went down to South Carolina to Charleston, and we actually went to Fort Sumter, and I saw this 500-piece puzzle of the Civil War, and I, and I like doing puzzles once in a while, and, and me and my youngest daughter, Samantha, actually made this a project and we took a couple of weeks and we worked on it a little bit each night and we put together this puzzle on the civil war it was a really neat thing to do with my daughter now the one of the things that we did first what do we usually do first when we put together a puzzle we put together the edge pieces don't we because those are the clearer pieces of the puzzle that we can put together to build a framework for the puzzle and then we can fill in the middle pieces as we have time and I like using this illustration because that's kind of how I feel about Daniel 11. We can look at the clearer pieces of the puzzle, which will then form a framework to fill in the rest. And so let's look at some of these clearer pieces, clear textual markers in Daniel 10 through 12. What's interesting is we find Medo-Persia mentioned as the first empire in Daniel 10, 11, and 12. We find Cyrus, the king of Persia mentioned in verse one of chapter 10. We find the kingdom of Persia, the kings of Persia, and the prince of Persia mentioned in verses 13 and 20 of Daniel 10. And then we find Darius the Mede mentioned in Daniel 11.1. 1. And then we find four Persian kings mentioned in verse 2 of Daniel 11. So we can see here that Daniel 11 begins its empire sequence with Persia. And that's because Daniel was living under the Persian empire at that point in history. Now next we find a discussion of Greece, which naturally followed Persia in the empire sequence. In verses, uh, uh, verse 20 of chapter 10, and then verse 2 of chapter 11, we find the phrases Prince of Grecia and Realm of Grecia. And so we see Greece follows Persia in the empire sequence. Then we go to the four Greek empires. In verse 4, it talks about how Alexander's kingdom is divided toward the four winds of heaven, which, which is a description of the fourfold division of his kingdom, and you'll find that mentioned in Daniel 8 as well. And so not only do, uh, does Greece follow Persia, but then the four Greek empires follow Greece in the sequence, okay? Then we find details that, that lead us and imply the next empire of imperial Rome. This power does according to his will in chapter 11, verse 16. This power consumes the glorious land in 11 verse 16, which is a parallel to the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. Then we find the raiser of taxes in verse 20. This is a, a, a textual reference to Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2 verse 1, a Roman emperor who taxed the kingdom of Israel, and that's why Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to enroll in the census and be taxed. Then we find the prince of the covenant broken in Daniel 11 verse 22 which is a clear description of the crucifixion of Christ. And Christ was crucified 
when the Roman Empire had control of Judah, Judea. And so these are clear details to show us Rome is in this sequence of empires as well. Now, when we hit verse 31 of Daniel 11, we find a mention of the daily, which we also find in Daniel 12, 11 and Daniel 8, 9 through 14 in the context of the Dark Age papacy. So we can say safely then that by verses 30 and 31, the papacy then enters the narrative. This is a clear passage that forms connections with passages outside of the 11th chapter. Then we find a discussion of the abomination of desolation, which is mentioned in Daniel 11:31, and then in Daniel 12 as well, which is a discussion of the papacy. Then we find also qualities like the papacy exalts and magnifies himself. He speaks marvelous things. And, and in Daniel 12, he rules for a time, times, and half a time. These are all clearer texts that show us that the papacy is, is actually the power being active in these respective verses of Daniel 11, which is very interesting. Then we find the year 1798, the time of the end, which is mentioned in Daniel 11:35 and in, in uh, 11 verse 40, and then in Daniel chapter 12, 4 through 9. And this shows us um, that we're, we're, we're dealing with the year 1798 and beyond when we, when we hit verse 40. And so this is another clear textual marker. And then when we roll down to Daniel 12, 1, 2, and 3, we see Michael standing up. We see God's people delivered. We see many that sleep in the dust of the earth awaking. And we see the, how the wise will shine forever. And these are all details to describe the close of probation, the time of trouble, the deliverance of God's people when Jesus returns, a resurrection from the dead, and the faithful uh, ruling and, and reigning for eternity with Christ. And so in these textual markers, we see clear evidence that these are verses that are important and show us clear empires in those verses. Now, we might not be able to, to, we might wrestle with some of the passages in between these clear verses and maybe have a difference of understanding on them. But certainly the basic framework of this empire sequence can be seen. All right. Now, let me summarize this on this next slide. Again, you see Persia in these various verses in Daniel 10 and 11. You see Greece in these verses. You see the four Greek empires in Daniel 11, verse 4. You see Imperial Rome clearly described in these verses. You see Papal Rome clearly described in these verses. Then you see the time of the end. And then you see Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. And so this is a, this, these are the edge pieces of the puzzle, if you will. And then by God's grace, as we get more understanding on Daniel 11, we can go deeper into the vision and maybe fill in some of the other verses as well. And so hopefully this textual outline will help us to understand the basic framework of Daniel 11. Now, again, here is my suggested outline, um, fleshing out all the verses in the chapter, not just the clearer ones. Again, Persia, I believe, is mentioned in verses 1 and 2, Greece and the four empires in verses 2, 3, and 4. Um, the warfare between the king of the north and the king of the south in verses 5 to 15, which at that point in history was Seleucid, Syria, and Ptolemaic Egypt. Then you have Rome in verses 16 to 30, the first part, which I'll call 30a again. Uh, Rome becomes the next king of the north. Then you have in verses 30b to 39 and verses 40 to 45, the two phases of the papacy, the dark age phase, and then the end time phase. And that power is acting as the king of the north. And then in Daniel 12, 1, 2, and 3, you, you find Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. So this is, again, a, a, my proposed arrangement of this chapter.
okay? Now, I wanna talk to you a little bit about, and let me get to this on my other computer so I can read it because part of this verse is blocked. I wanna talk to you now about those three challenging passages, verses 23 to 29, uh, verses 36 to 39, and verse 40. And I want to bring in some insights onto this to help us maybe to clarify some of these verses. Let me just get there in my other laptop here so I can read this with you without it being blocked here. Almost there. Bear with me. Okay, here we are. Okay. Now, verses 23 to 29 is a, is a, a passage where we see a divergence of, of interpretations um, now, keep in mind, if you have your Bibles, I'm not going to turn there, but if you look at verse 22, verse 22 ends with the breaking of the Prince of the Covenant. And that, I believe, is a clear uh, indication of Christ's crucifixion. That text talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which happened during the reign of the Roman Empire. Now, what's interesting is right after that phrase, we find verses 23 and 24 say, and after the league is made with him, talking about the Roman king of the north, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, and the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And so this is a debated passage in Seventh-day Adventism today among Daniel 11 interpreters. But let me share some thoughts with you on this passage, okay? So let's look at some thoughts on verses 23 to 29. Even though I've only read 23 and 24, I'm going to be speaking about the entire passage, all right? So there are basically three main views among others that have been suggested by Seventh-day Adventist interpreters on this passage, okay? Now the first view, and this is the more traditional view that Uriah Smith held and many of our pioneers held. This verse, they suggest in this first view is, a Judeo-Roman league that later ended with the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70. This is verses 23 and 24. And then there is a conflict between Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, the raiser of taxes, and, and Mark Antony over control of the Roman Empire. And uh, Octavian defeated Antony in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC and won control of the entire Roman Empire. Some suggest that that's what you see in verses 25 to 28. And then we see in verse 29, uh, at least those who hold this view see Constantine's dedication of Constantinople in AD 330. So that's one view of this passage that uh, certain Adventist interpreters on Daniel 11 hold. Now there's the second view which is this, some see a description of the papacy entering the narrative in verse 23 as the next king of the north, and they see these verses as a description of the medieval crusades against Islam, and with Islam being the king of the south. And so view number one sees this as a, a description of imperial Roman history still, whereas view number two uh, those who propose this second view see the papacy entering the narrative in verse 23, and then this, this verse is a description of the medieval crusades against Islam, which is, they, they claim to be the king of the south, okay? Now, there's the third view, which I've just discovered recently, which I think is very interesting. A third view proposes that this league is a league between Christianity and paganism 
during the time of Constantine, which is verses 23 and 24. Then in verses 25 to 28, they see this, these verses describing a military conflict between Constantine, who is the king of the north, and Valerius Licinius, who is the king of the south, who controlled the eastern Roman Empire, including Egypt, over control of the, of the entire empire. Um, and this conflict took place for 10 years between AD 314 and 324 when Constantine finally killed, defeated and killed uh, Licinius. And then they see in verse 29, similar to the first view, a dedication of the city of Constantinople in AD 330. Okay, so here are these three views on this verse. Well, I, to be honest with you, I don't really have an issue with views one and three. But, verse, uh, but view two, which suggests that the papacy enters the narrative, I don't think the textual evidence supports this. I don't believe there is any textual evidence to suggest that the papacy enters Daniel 11 and verse 23. I don't believe it enters until verse, verses 30 and 31. So views one and three are possible, but view two seems improbable just because there's nothing in the text to suggest that there is a clear transference into another empire altogether. Usually in Daniel 11, when you see an empire transference, there's usually some strong details that indicate a shift to another empire in sequence. And you don't really see that going from verses 22 to 23. So I'm going to suggest that this passage describes events in imperial Roman history. And it could be either that conflict between, it could be the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and then this conflict between Octavian and Antony, and then the dedication of Constantinople. Or it could be this league between paganism and, and Christianity, um, and then the rule of Constantine, the career of Constantine leading to the dedication of Constantinople. Both uh, views one and three are plausible, I, I believe, as far as these verses are concerned, okay? All right, so now let's look at the next clearer text, and this is verses 30 and 31, and I've been pumping this up in this presentation to, to demonstrate a clear transition into the Dark Age papacy. So in verses 30 to 31, it says, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. And if you assume that the imperial Roman power is the king of the north leading up to this verse, which I believe, then it talks about how ships from Cyprus will come against this Roman king of the north. And it says, therefore, he shall be grieved. So what does this mean when it says this power will be grieved? Well, I believe this is an indication of how these ships of, uh, from Cyprus will come and grieve the Imperial Roman King of the North. And I interpret that to mean that it will cause its collapse. But then it says, after being grieved, that it would return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So I believe this is saying that at some point, ships from Cyprus will come against Imperial Rome, grieve that power by causing its collapse, but then Rome would return in the form of the papacy and it would do damage and rage against the Holy Covenant, which describes the persecuting activities of the Dark Age papacy. And then it goes on to say, so, shall, so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant, which could describe how those that recant their faith will, will gain favor with the papacy. And it says, and forces shall be mustered by him, meaning the nations that uh, align themselves with the papacy um, this power would use the military and police powers of those nations, those forces, to control conscience. And so forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, 
Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, as I said earlier, I see this as a clear description of a transition into the Dark Age papacy because of its attack against the Holy Covenant and because of the mention of the, of the terms daily and abomination of desolation. When we compare those terms with Daniel chapter 8 with respect to the little horn power, which clearly describes the papal phase of that power, I believe that those, these two texts are parallel and that this, this verse describes the Dark Age papacy. Okay. Now, the ships from Cyprus has been an interesting phrase, and some have said, well, you know, is this geographic Cyprus, or is this an apocalyptic term that is to be understood in a metaphorical, symbolical sense, symbolic sense? I would suggest that the ships from Cyprus is, an, is, is to be understood symbolically, because when you look at the end of, of Imperial Roman history, one of, the, one of the empires that really caused a lot of damage was the, the Vandal Empire, uh, centered in North Africa. In fact, in AD 455, just uh, I think it was 21 years before Rome collapsed, the Vandal Empire sacked the city of Rome violently. And, and the Vandals were a naval empire that wreaked havoc on Mediterranean shipping and, and the economy of the Mediterranean during that day. So I believe that this could be an indication of the naval Vandal Empire and how it it played a significant role in the collapse of the imperial phase of the Roman Empire. And then later on, um, after that power collapsed, Rome would return in the form of the papacy as the next empire in sequence to war against the Holy Covenant, to take away the daily, and to set up the abomination of desolation. Now, there, this conclusion, I think, is further confirmed in verses 33 and 35, which clearly describe the persecuting activities of the Dark Age papacy. Verses 33 and 35 say, and those are the people who understand shall instruct many. And this is talking about those who remain faithful during those dark ages. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, which are interesting details describing how many so-called heretics who are being faithful to God, who are identified as heretics by the papacy were killed with the sword and they were burned at the stake through the flame, and also by captivity and plundering. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them and purify them and make them white until the time of the end, which is the year 1798, because it is still for the appointed time. And so here we find, I believe, a clear reference to the activities of the Dark Age papacy. And so long and short on this is I see verses 30 to 39 as a description of the Dark Age papacy um, and its activities during that Dark Age period, okay? So let's highlight some thoughts on verses 36 to 39 uh, for a moment, um, because this is the next passage that is heavily debated when it comes to Adventist interpreters on Daniel 11. Now, when, with respect to verses 36 to 39, there are two main views that have been suggested by Adventist interpreters. View number one is, is that these verses describe the rebellious character of Dark Age Papal Rome from 538 to 1798. That's the first view. The second view is they see, those who hold this view, they see verse 36 as a transition into the, the atheistic career of revolutionary France during the French Revolution, which we understand through Revelation 11, which talks about how uh, the two witnesses will lie dead 
in the street of the city, which is called spiritually Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified, and they would stay there three and a half days, which using the day year principle means that that was a three and a half year period of time, which lasted from November of 1793 to June of 1797, when the French assembly declared France to be an atheistic nation. Okay, so some Adventist interpreters on Daniel 11 see verses 36 to 39 as describing this atheistic France sequence of historical events. Okay, now here's my view. The textual evidence in this passage, I believe, clearly supports the first view, especially verses 36 and 37. I believe that, that verses 36 to 39 are a continued description of the Dark Age papacy, whereas verses 30 through 35 described its persecuting activities, 36 to 39 describes its rebellious character in terms of its posture toward God. Now, let me show you some evidence on this so that you can see this. Let's look at verses 36 and 37. It says, let me see, let me get there on my computer. Okay, then the king shall do according to his own will. So again, this doesn't really show a transference into another power. It seems to be a continued discussion of the prior verses. Then the king, i.e. the papal king of the north, shall do according to his own will. And notice he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now, in reading this verse, there are some clear phrases in this verse that, that really irrefutably connect this king here with the little horns of Daniel 7 and 8. So this is what I'm going to share with you on the next slide here. Thoughts from uh, verses 36 to 39. Again, the king of verse 36 is synonymous with the little horn of Daniel 7 and 8, which is the dark age papal king of the north. Both powers exalt themselves, both speak words of blasphemy, and both prosper in their persecution of the faithful. So let me share with you some textual connections on this. Here we see in these verses here, Notice in Daniel 8, it says, this little horn will exalt himself to the prince of the host. In Daniel 8, 12, he shall magnify himself in his heart. Daniel 8, 25. And then Daniel eleven thirty six 36 says, he shall magnify himself above every god, nor regard any god in verse 37. And then he shall exalt himself above them all in Daniel 11, verse 37. So we see these clear textual connections that connect this king with the little horn, in this case of Daniel 8, because these, verse, these verses outside of Daniel 11 are all verses from Daniel 8, these uh, Daniel 8 verse 12 and 8 verse 25, okay? Now, when we go to the next slide here, how about speaking great words? No, notice in Daniel 7 verse 8, this little horn speaks pompous words. In Daniel 7 verse 20, a mouth which, a mouth which spoke pompous words. Daniel 7 25 speaks pompous words against the Most High. And in Daniel 11 verse 36, he speaks blasphemies against the God of gods. Again, the little horn of Daniel 7 seems to be connected to this king of verse 36 of Daniel 11 by having these similar qualities. And then again, it would prosper in its period of persecution during the dark ages. He did all this and prosper, Daniel 8, 12, and shall prosper and thrive, Daniel 8, 24. He shall cause deceit to prosper, Daniel 8, 25. And then again, Daniel eleven thirty six 36 says he will prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, meaning it would prosper during those dark age 1260 years in terms of persecuting God's faithful people. 
Okay. Now let's see, you know, uh, one of the things I'm trying to think here, let me look back on this slide. Yeah. Magnifying himself above God. Let me forward this. What does it mean for this power to magnify itself against God? Let me get to this statement here. It's very interesting, this observation that Ellen White made in, in Great Controversy, page 446. She's, now, she's talking about the little horn, but she uses Daniel 11 language and terminology in this statement. She says, says Daniel, of the little horn, the papacy, he shall think to change times and the law, Daniel 7.25, revised version. And Paul styled the same power, the man of sin, who was to exalt himself above God. And then she said, only by changing God's law could the papacy exalt itself above God. And so when we look at Daniel 11 and we see how this king, this papal king of the north in verse 36, exalts itself above God, it did so by thinking to change God's law. And so all this evidence leads me to believe and conclude that this king in verse 36 doesn't show a transition into atheistic France. It, 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 it maintains a continued discussion of the Dark Age papacy by describing its blasphemous and rebellious character qualities, okay? Now, what's interesting is in the early 1950s, Adventist thought leaders got together and they studied the passage of verses 36 to 39 because they realized that many of the pioneers taught that this was, in fact, a transition into atheistic France. Not all the pioneers taught this, but some of them did. Well, this committee did a careful Bible study, and they concluded that verses 36 to 39 do, in fact, uh, describe the papacy. So, and, and the results of this study were, were published in a ministry magazine article in March of 1954, an uh, article entitled Report on the 11th of Daniel. And on page 23, um, the following statements made. And before I read that, let me just say that I actually have a copy of this article if you'd like me to include that with the materials that I send to Pastor Chris. But notice this statement says, the committee felt that a careful study of Daniel 11, 36 to 39, reveals outstanding characteristics of the papacy and a remarkably clear picture of the cunning flattery and deceit of this power in its historical activities and in its religious practices. These verses parallel not only the above mentioned verses in Daniel 7 and 8, but also 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 and Revelation 13, 5 and 6. It was therefore the unanimous conclusion of the committee that, both historically and according to sound exegesis of the text, Daniel 11, 36 to 39 must refer to the papal power, and further, that these verses are parallel to Daniel 7, 24 and 25, and Daniel 8, 23 to 25, which have always been considered by the Seventh-day Adventist ministry as referring to the papacy. So we can see very clearly that even this historical reference confirms this conclusion that verses 36 to 39 discuss the Dark Age papacy. Whoops, I forgot to flip to that slide when I was reading that. My apologies. I was flipping on my other computer here, and I forgot to flip the slide here. So there is the statement. There's the continued uh, commentary on the statement. My apologies for that. I'll try to stay on top of both of these laptops here. So let's look at some more thoughts on Daniel 11, 36 to 39. Notice also in that verse that that power would not regard the, regard the God of his fathers. In other words, it would not worship God faithfully as the original apostles did, which the papacy claims apostolic succession from, by the way, in claiming that it descends from the apostle Peter. 
And then it also said it would not regard the desire of women. Now, some have suggested that this phrase could be a reference to the required celibacy of Catholic priests, which is a possibility. Looking at this in a symbolic fashion, however, since a woman represents a church in prophecy, this phrase could also mean that the papacy does not accept any other churches as true except its own Catholic church. So that's a possible rendering and interpretation of this phrase, which again, further confirms the papacy as being the power that um, is described in verses 36 to 39. Now, Ellen White also confirms um, this conclusion as well. And this is probably the most concentrated statement that Ellen White made on Daniel chapter 11. This was written in 1903 in Manuscript Releases, volume 13, page 394. She made the following observation that I think is really interesting. She said, the prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. And since she wrote this in 1903, evidently a majority of the chapter had been fulfilled historically by, by the time she wrote this, which is very interesting. Then she says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. In the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant so shall he do, he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. That's verse 30. And then she goes on to quote verses 31 to 36 in this statement. So notice Mrs. White includes verses 30, verse 36 with the passage of verses 30 to 35, which shows that it describes the very same power. Now, this is another piece of evidence to show that verse 36 doesn't transition into atheistic France, but it describes the same power described in the previous verses, which is the papacy. Okay, so let's um, look at a couple of thoughts on this. The quote by Mrs. White in 13 MR 394 reveal, reveals two important principles with respect to verses 36 to 39, one of which I just mentioned, by the way. Um, first, those who pro propose that verses 36 to 39 apply to atheistic France, state that verses 30 to 35 describes the papacy and verse 36 transitions to France. Yet Ellen White noted that verses 30 to 36 apply to the same power, which she infers is the papacy. Then the second point is, she also noted that much of the history in verses 30 to 36 will be repeated. And these verses describe the persecuting activities and the uh, the quality of self-exaltation, she implies that the Dark Age activities of the papacy will be repeated at the end of history. Now, I'm going to propose that verses 40 to 45, the very end of Daniel 11, are an end-time repetition of these activities that are described in verses 30 to 36, and really right through to verse 39, not just 30 to 36, but also including 37 to 39 as well. And so I think the, this, this statement by Ellen White is, is a strong statement to show us that, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting to pop that slide to you. I apologize. There's the second point. <laughs> so let me read it to you again. Second, Ellen White noted that much of the history in verses 30 to 36 will be repeated. This implies that the dark age activities of the papacy will be repeated at the end of history. And again, I propose that verses 40 to 45 are an end time repetition of these activities as described in 30 to 36. I'm gonna do better to keep these slides up to date for you. I apologize again. All right, so let's move on now um, and look at verse 40. Now verse 40 is a heavily debated passage 
in uh, circles on Daniel chapter 11 as far as Adventist interpreters who have been at the forefront of interpretation when it comes to this, this verse. Now, again, there are three main views, among others, that have been proposed by Adventist interpreters on this passage. The first view, which um, probably is held by a good number of interpreters, not all, but a good number of them. View number one, this verse describes a, actually, I take that back. This is the, the more traditional view of many of our pioneers. Uh, I couldn't quite see the whole screen here because of the because of the captions on there, so I couldn't quite see this. So as I look at it on my laptop and it's you know with in, in full view here, this is actually a, a, a held a view held by many of our pioneers. Okay, so view number one: this verse describes a three-way war between Turkey, who is identified as the king of the north. The king, which is mentioned in verse 36, which they interpret as France, atheistic France, and more so Napoleonic France, and Egypt, who they identify as the king of the south during the Napoleonic era. Many of our pioneers suggested that, that the vast majority of Daniel 1140 to 45 was fulfilled when Napoleon engaged in a three-way war against Turkey and Egypt in the early 19th century. And again, I want to show you how our interpretation of verses 36 and 30 to 39 can, can influence how we interpret verse 40. This view is based on interpreting the king of verse 36 as atheistic France. You see, how we interpret prior verses in Daniel 11 can ripple through and, and influence how we interpret verses beyond that, those, those passages that we interpret earlier in the prophecy. Okay. And if Atheistic France is, in fact, the king of verse 36. This would affect how verse 40 is seen, okay? And so it's something to keep in mind here. All right, so now let's look at verse uh, view number two. Some suggest that this verse describes not a three-way war, but a two-way war, a dual war between the papacy, the king of the north, and atheistic France, who is identified as the king of the south. And again, this view is based on interpreting the king of verse 36 as the papacy, okay? So again, how you interpret verses 36 to 39 influences how you interpret verse 40. And so the second view sees the papacy as the king of the north and atheistic France as the king of the south in verse 40. Now there's a third view, which is similar to, the, to view number two with the exception of the identity of the king of the south. This verse also describes a two-way war between the papacy as the king of the north, and yet the king of the south is not atheistic France, but it's also identified as Islam, which is the king of the south. This view, again, is based on seeing the king of verse 36 as the papacy, and it's also based on interpreting verses 23 to 29 as describing the medieval crusades between the papacy, the king of the north, and Islam, the king of the south. See, because people who espouse the Islam view inject Islam in verses 23 to 29 as the king of the south, they're suggesting that, that Islam is still the king of the south in verse 40. And so you can see how, how we understand earlier verses can help us and influence us as far as our interpretation of later verses in Daniel 11. Now, here's a note that I want to um, just highlight here. I don't believe view one fits the textual evidence of verse 40. I believe, again, that verse 36 refers to the papacy, papacy, not atheistic France. And since the papacy is the king of the north, 
in verse 36, it must also be the king of the north in verse 40, because there's no transference there to another king of the north mentioned. There's no clear evidence in that text to show that we're shifting to another power altogether. It seems to be a, just a continued discussion of the previous power, okay? Now also, here's something to, to, to uh, think, keep in mind too. Verse 40, I believe, reveals a chiastic structure, and I'm gonna explain that in a minute which suggests a two-way war and not a triangular three-way war. Now, also another reason why this is uh, a two-way war and not a three-way war is because the two earlier north-south conflicts in Daniel 11 only involved the two powers of the north and south. And since those previous two conflicts between north and south only involved the two of them, it would seem consistent that this third north-south conflict also follows suit, okay? Now, let's read verse 40, and then I want to make some comments on this. So notice it says, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. This is the king of verse 36, which is the papal king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him, the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries overwhelm them and pass through. Now, again, this verse is heavily debated. Some see a three-way war, others see a two-way war. I believe that the textual evidence best fits a two-way war between the papacy and the king of the south, okay? So let's make some comments on this. Here is a possible chiastic structure. Um, a chiasm basically is a is a Hebrew literary device that uses parallelisms to simplify information and show patterns and repetitions so that we can help, we can, we can understand what Bible writers are saying. And by the way, when you read Psalms and Proverbs, those two books are loaded with this literary structure, this literary device. And I believe we see that in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. Uh, letter A is, we see the king of the south. He attacks, letter B, him, letter C, which is the king of verse 36, which is the king of the north. Then it says the king of the north, which is C prime, responds by coming against him, the king of the south, which is a parallel, which involves A prime. So you can see this parallelism taking place where you see this dual war through this chiastic structure, okay? Now, what's interesting is when you look at the New Living Translation, which is a, a newer, more modern translation of the Bible, which I, I believe we need to be careful. I think, I think we need to be careful when we look at newer translations. We need to make sure that we're, we're, we're using as a main study Bible the, the, the confirmed translations like the King James, the New King James, et cetera, because these are confirmed translations. I do think that the New Living Translation has an interesting rendering of this text. It says, then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. Then it says, the king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers, and a vast navy. He will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. So it's interesting that the New Living Translation uses this two-way war concept in talking about the war between the kings of the north and south in verse 40. Okay, so let's make some observations about verse 40. Let's start with the first phrase. Uh, at the time of the end. 
What's interesting is every major English translation of scripture uses the preposition at with the time of the end in verse 40. Now, I believe since the time of the end began in 1798, according to Daniel 12, 4 through 9 and Great Controversy 356, the phrase at the time of the end suggests an event in that very year of 1798. That preposition seems to say at the time of the end. In other words, in the very year of 1798, something's going to happen. Okay. Now, in other words, in the year 1798, the king of the south would attack the king of the north. Now, the word for attack, or in the King James push, that's the word nagak, which is in the Strong's uh, Dictionary, uh, entry number 5055. This term means to gore or butt with horns, like a bull goring another animal. And so what this implies is an act of conquest. So a specific power, the king of the south, attacked, and I might even say conquered the papacy in the year 1798, okay? Now, again, the word Nagak implies that the king of the south would deal a death blow to the king of the north. I believe this is a parallel to the deadly wound of the sea beast power in Revelation 13. I believe that this power that attacked the papacy at the time of the end, in the year 1798, gave a death blow to this power. And this is a metaphorical phrase to describe how the papacy was removed from power through this aggressive action of the King of the South, okay? Now, a specific power did in fact give the papal King of the North a deadly wound in the year 1798, and this is atheistic France. So I personally don't see atheistic France entering the narrative in verse 36 of Daniel 11. I personally see verse 40 as discussing this activity of the atheistic king of the south, the king of France, or Napoleon and his armies, his French armies. So what's interesting here too, is that the king of the south earlier in Daniel 11, verses five to 15 and verses 25 to 29 was in fact Egypt, okay? By the way, scripture and Ellen White convey that Egypt is a symbol that points to an atheistic rebellious disposition against God. Now, in Exodus 5, 1 and 2, when Moses went to Pharaoh and demanded by the authority of the God of heaven that Pharaoh release Israel and let them go, Pharaoh displayed this atheistic, rebellious attitude toward God. He said, I do not know who is the Lord. I don't know him, and neither will I let Israel go. And so Pharaoh refused to acknowledge the existence and the prerogatives of God as declared by Moses. Now, it's important to note that Pharaoh himself was not an atheist, as we might understand an atheist today. He probably worshipped other gods. He probably worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars, and he may have even seen himself as a god. But the important point here is his posture toward the God of heaven. He had no interest in God. He defied God. He refused to acknowledge God. And this is the kind of disposition that atheistic France um, displayed even beyond its atheistic disposition from 1793 to 1797. And this is the very same disposition that Napoleon uh, displayed because Napoleon refused to acknowledge the authority of the God of heaven. And in fact, he even commanded that the papacy crown him as the emperor of France. And so 
we can see that atheistic France and even into the Napoleonic era after the atheistic disposition of France was legally repudiated, they demonstrated this atheistic disposition of defiance against God. Now, we also find that mentioned in Revelation 11, 7, and 8 with respect to the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit and where, you know, it's, 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 it's that empire, atheistic France, where the two witnesses of God's word um, were, were, were lying spiritually uh, or lying dead in the street of the city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified, which is said in Revelation 11. This is, again, a description of atheistic France. And Ellen White confirmed that in Great Controversy 269, where she talked about how Egypt is a symbol of atheism. And since the king of the south has always been Egypt through the narrative of Daniel 11, it, it proves consistent that symbolic Egypt in verse 40 should be a description of an atheistic power that dealt the deadly wound to the papacy at the time of the end in the year 1798, which, of course, atheistic France uh, fulfilled. Okay. And by the way, this, this speaks again to the consistency between Daniel and Revelation. If Egypt, in an, in an anti-typical, typological, apocalyptic sense, is a symbol of atheism in Revelation, it would make sense that it would apply also to Daniel as well, because they're, they're, they're partner books with each other. Okay. All right, let's see what we got. Some more observations about verse 40. So I propose that when the papacy enters the narrative of Daniel 11, as I said earlier, in verses 30 to 31, this serves as a clear transition from geographic powers to global symbolic powers. The papacy is a global power, not limited by geography, and it seems consistent to view the king of the south, quote-unquote, symbolic Egypt in the same manner, okay? Also, the kings of the north in Daniel 11 are Seleucid Syria in verses 5 to 15, Imperial Rome in verses 16 to 30a, and Papal Rome in verses 30b all the way to 45. Each of these powers have sought to control God's covenant people and thus serve as counterfeit kings of the north. Yet, in scripture, God is really the true king of the north. And here's where we need to really understand the broader under, uh, uh, view of what the king of the north represents in Daniel 11. The north is a divine direction where God dwells. And when you look at the compass, that's the highest position on the compass, which is, a, is, is symbolism to show that God deserves and rightly occupies the highest position as God, okay? And any power or any individual that tries to sit in the position of God is a counterfeit king of the north. And in fact, if you see there right there in Isaiah 14, Satan was actually the first counterfeit king of the north because he wanted to ascend into the sides of the north and sit in God's position. And so each of these powers in Daniel 11, Syria, Rome, and the papacy, they all occupied God's covenant people, controlled them, persecuted them, controlled their worship activities, and therefore assumed roles that only God can rightfully perform. And that's why these powers are counterfeit kings of the north. Now, the south is the opposite direction of the north, where God has no place at all. In one extreme in the north, God has the highest position. In the other extreme to the south, God is denied altogether and has no place. And again, this is the disposition of the king of the south, an atheistic disposition. Okay. Now, what I want to do for a moment is I mentioned earlier on that I wanted to just take a moment to discuss the history between Babylon, Egypt, and Judah 
And it's parallel to verses 40 to 45, which is a fascinating history. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop some history on you for a little bit here, just for a few moments. So just bear with me as I work through this. But I'm going to share with you why I think it's important to understand these historical parallels when it comes to the last few verses of Daniel 11. So the Old Testament history involving Babylon, Egypt, and Judah seem to be paralleled in Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45. Now, in the way of history, one thing we need to realize, historically speaking, is that Nabopolassar was a general for the Assyrian army. And in 626 BC, he declared himself king of Babylon. And he established the, what historians call the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which began in that first year of 626, and it lasted until 539 when Persia conquered Babylon. Okay, Now, Nabopolassar got very aggressive in his military activities. He actually invaded and conquered much of the Assyrian Empire to the north of Israel. And he even sacked Nineveh, one of its capitals, in 612 BC. Now, this move threatened Egypt because Egypt heavily benefited from the presence of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire served as a buffer state between it and Babylon so that Egypt didn't have to worry about Babylon encroaching on them. Um, and so when, when Nabopolassar did these things, Egypt got very, very nervous about that. Okay. So, Nico II of Egypt came to power in 609 BC. He's actually mentioned in several verses in the Bible. And he decided to invade the, the Assyrian Empire. He and his army marched north to take control of Assyria to, to halt the expansion of Babylon. Okay. Now, King Josiah of Judah, who, by the way, was the last faithful king of Judah, he was an ally of Babylon and tried to stop Nico. Their armies actually met on the plain of Megiddo in 609. Now, Megiddo is actually one of the root words for Armageddon, which is very fascinating. Okay. But as it turned out, Egypt ended up routing Judah, and Josiah was killed in this battle. And after this victory, Nico immediately marched his army north to take on Nabopolassar and the Babylonian army. And so after defeating Judah and Josiah, Nico marched the Egyptian army north to meet Babylon in battle, okay? Now, Nico ended up pushing, to use a King James Version term in verse 40, he ended up pushing Nabopolassar and the Babylonian armies back to Babylon in 609 and 608. He won a couple of different engagements against them and actually sent Nabopolassar back to Babylon with his tail between his legs, so to speak, after having severely weakening, he severely weakened the Babylonian army. In fact, I think in one battle, he destroyed an entire garrison of Babylonian soldiers, Babylonian troops. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing. If Nico and Egypt parallel the king of the south, because Egypt is south of, of literal Israel in that day, or was that in, 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 in that day, and the king of, uh, and, the, and Nabopolassar and Babylon parallel the king of the north, then this historical trend is reflected in verse, uh, in verse 40, part A, because the king of the south pushes against the king of the north. Well, this happened historically in Daniel's lifetime. Nico pushes Nabopolassar back to Babylon, okay? Now, what's interesting is Nabopolassar was getting up in years, and he ended up turning his army over to his son, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar 
re he he basically reinvigorated and 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 re-strengthened the Babylonian army, and then he later reinvaded the northern area of the Assyrian Empire, and then he ended up defeating the Egyptian army and Nico at Carchemish, um, in 605 BC. So, this historical trend is reflected in the second part of verse 40. Remember in verse 40, the king of the south pushes at the king of the north, and then in the second part, the king of the north responds by reattacking the king of the south. Well, this happened back in Daniel's day when Nebuchadnezzar interacted with Nico, okay? Now, after defeating Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar next invaded the glorious land of Judah, and he also brought Edom, Moab, and Ammon under his control as well. Now, when you go to Daniel 11, verse 41, the next action of the king of the north is to enter the glorious land, but then some from Edom, Moab, and Ammon escape out of the hand of the king of the north. Well, this particular action here of conquering the glorious land and Edom, Moab, and Ammon is reflected in verse 41a. And then the Bible also shares with us that some faithful Jews from Edom, Moab, and Ammon were allowed to return to Judah in Jeremiah chapter 40 and in Isaiah chapter 11. This trend is mentioned in the second part of verse 41, which is very interesting. Okay. All right, let's move forward. Now, Nebuchadnezzar next also secured the allegiance of Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. And you'll find many prophecies in Jeremiah and in the book of Ezekiel that talk about how Nebuchadnezzar created military alliances with Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. He couldn't militarily conquer these regions because after he conquered the glorious land and secured the allegiance of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, he found out that his father had died back in Babylon and he had to hasten back to Babylon to establish his rule. And that's when Daniel and his friends went back to Babylon in captivity. And so rather than complete the military conquest of these nations, he actually entered into a military alliance with them to where they were subservient to him so he secured their allegiance. Now, what's interesting is in, in verses 42 and 43, the king of the north controls the gold and silver and precious things of Egypt, and then Libya and Ethiopia follow in his steps, which is very fascinating, okay? Then Nebuchadnezzar also eventually conquered the glorious holy mountain of Jerusalem. It's important to realize that Nebuchadnezzar actually invaded the glorious land three different times. The first time was in 605, in that first conquest of Jerusalem when Daniel and his friends went back to Babylon, okay? But then he also came back in 598, 597, when he conquered Jerusalem a second time because Jerusalem had rebelled against his rule, and he went back and pacified Jerusalem. And that's when Ezekiel and 10,000 Israelites also went to Babylon. But then Nebuchadnezzar came back a third time when the last king of Judah, I believe it was, uh, uh, I believe it was, Zedediah maybe, or um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I believe it was Daniel's uncle who was king, or at least one of Daniel's relatives was king. He was the last king of Judah, and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in 588 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar reinvaded that region and then finally leveled the entire place, burning the temple to the ground, leveling the city, um, and that took place in 586 BC, thus conquering the glorious holy mountain of Jerusalem. Um, and the temple. So Nebuchadnezzar also eventually conquered the glorious holy mountain, and this trend is actually mentioned in verse 45, where the king of the north plants the tabernacles of its palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So we see a reflection of that in verse 
45, the first part, which is very fascinating. All right, bear with me. We got a few more details. Yet, Babylon would eventually come to its end. News or tidings in the King James Version in verse 44 from the east and north would trouble this power, which involved an, an invasion by the Persian king Cyrus the Great, who God calls through the prophet Isaiah, his anointed, by the way, and he's the one that conquered the empire of Babylon. And this is mentioned in verse 44 and then in the second part of verse 45 in Daniel 11, which I think is fascinating. Now, this verse will be fulfilled in an apocalyptic sense when God's when Christ, God's anointed one, will rescue the end-time faithful in a great deliverance when he returns. And so we can see these end-time parallels here in this verse, okay? All right, we're almost done here, so bear with me. Now, the thing that I think is very important when you look at the activities of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon conquered every reg region in and around ancient Judah to completely surround and overwhelm God's covenant people in that day, all right? Now, this history serves as an apocalyptic model, I believe, as described in the last six verses of Daniel 11, for how God's covenant people will be completely surrounded on a global scale by the papal king of the north, which is end-time spiritual Babylon, by the way. This will be the end-time battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to show you uh, a map here, um, and there I go, staying behind again one more. There's the bullet point I just explained. Now, I want to show you a map. Here is a map of ancient Babylon. Notice how Babylon uh, conquered every area in and around Jerusalem. You see Libya over there to the west of Egypt. Um, down below Sinai and the Red Sea is Ethiopia. You don't see that on this map. But you see Edom, Moab, and Ammon there uh, to the, down to the southeast of Jerusalem there. That's where those nations were. You see Nebuchadnezzar conquered every territory around and in God's people, uh, and where God's covenant people were located. And I believe that this is a, a typological model for the end of time on a global scale. When the papacy heals from its deadly wound, it's going to try to overwhelm the whole world. It's going to try to conquer the whole world through Sunday legislation. And God's covenant people are going to be completely surrounded all around the world and isolated for destruction because they will not comply with Sunday laws. And so that's why I feel like this history is important because it shows that the historical activities of the king of the north in that day, which was Babylon, and its interaction with the king of the south, Egypt, and, with, and its interaction with the glorious land, that is a typological model for the end of time on a global scale on how the spiritual king of the north, the papacy, will conquer the entire world and try to completely surround God's covenant people for destruction. But just like Cyrus delivered Israel from Babylon, so will Jesus Christ, God's anointed at the end of time, come the second time to deliver God's faithful people. And I believe that's what Daniel 12, 1, 2, and 3 talk about. Okay. So let me draw some interpretive conclusions. And by the way, before I, I say this conclusion, um, these conclusions, let me make this observation. I believe that, that God gave Daniel those those specific details in the last six verses of Daniel 11, because he gave it to him in familiar terms that he was well acquainted with, because that history between Nebuchadnezzar, Nico, and, and, and God's covenant people in Judah, that history was all happening in Daniel's lifetime. He was familiar with it because it was happening right before his eyes. And so God 
was describing end time events to Daniel in Daniel chapter 11 at the end of the chapter in terms that he could understand because they were being historically fulfilled in, in, a, in, a, in a literal sense in his own day. And by the way, God did the same thing for John in Revelation. God gave the visions of, uh, of Revelation to John in terms that he could understand. John understood the sanctuary. He understood what seals were. He understood what trumpets were. He understood the plagues of Egypt. He understood Israel. He understood Babylon and all those great symbols in Revelation. And so God was conveying uh, prophetic symbols using terms and concepts that his visionaries could understand, namely Daniel and John. And so that's, a, that's an important observation, I think, to keep in mind. All right, so let's draw some interpretive conclusions. I'm proposing that Daniel 11, 23 to 29 describes events in the history of imperial Rome and does not describe the medieval crusades involving the papacy and Islam. Again, there's no evidence to suggest that an abrupt translation, uh, transition from 22 to 23, uh, from verses 22 to verse 23, going from Rome to the papacy. Okay, I believe it's simply a continued discussion of imperial Rome. I also propose that verses 36 to 39 of Daniel 11 describes the rebellious character of the Dark Age papacy and does not describe atheistic France. Again, when you go from verse 35 to 36, there doesn't seem to be a transition into another power. It seems to be a repetition of the power described in the previous verses, which I believe is, in fact, the papacy. And then finally, I propose that Daniel 11.40 describes a two-way war between the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is the papacy, and the king of the south is atheistic France. This text describes the deadly wound of the papacy in 1798. Remember, at the time of the end, as the phrase says. And then its subsequent healing of this wound is described in the future verses, in the second part of verse 40, all the way down to verse 45, when it is finally destroyed when Jesus returns. And so these are my conclusions that I'm proposing uh, today. All right, so again, back to this suggested outline. I've, I've showed this to you um, a couple of different times here. Again, you have Persia, Greece, the four Greek kingdoms, two of which were Syria and Egypt. Then you have Imperial Rome, and then you have Papal Rome, and it's two phases, the Dark Age phase, and then the End Time phase, and then you have Christ's return. I believe this is a reasonable empire sequence that that proves consistent with Daniel's earlier visions. And I'll show you that on this final slide here. You can see here uh, the parallel sequences of Daniel's four apocalyptic visions. And you can see in that column uh, where Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are mentioned, you can see Persia is mentioned in verses 1, 13, and 20 of Daniel 10, and then verses 1 and 2 of Daniel 11. You can see Greece is mentioned in verse uh, 20 of chapter 10, as well as uh, 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 11. You can see uh, the four Greek empires are mentioned uh, starting in verse 4 and then verses 5 to 15 to describe two of those four empires. Then Imperial Rome starts in verse 16, goes to 30, part A. There's no mention of the divided kingdoms in this vision. And, and by the way, going back up to Babylon, there's no mention of Babylon either because Babylon's already faded from the scene of history. So no need to mention that power either. But there's no mention of the divided kingdoms in Daniel 11. But you do see the papacy in the second part of verse 30, all the way to the first part of verse 45. And then you also see the papacy described in uh, verses 4 through 4 to 11 of Daniel 12, which will be the subject of next week's Sabbath school lesson. 
And then you find a discussion of the judgment in verse one, Michael stands up, which is the end of the investigative judgment. And then in verses 12 and 13, you find a time prophecy of 1335 years, which takes us down to the end of the 2300 prophecy to where the beginning of the judgment takes place and how Daniel will stand in his lot during that judgment. And then you see the second advent of Christ hinted at in verse 45b of Daniel 11, which describes how the king of the north will come to his end. And then you find that also discussed in Daniel 12, 1, 2, and 3. And so I'm suggesting through this entire presentation, and I probably could have just said this and not gone, gone through all this deep discussion, but I'm contending that Daniel 11 specifically follows suit with Daniel's earlier visions. It doesn't deviate. It might expand and enlarge on certain aspects of this empire sequence, but it seems pretty clear to me that, um, that, that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 proves completely consistent to Daniel's earlier apocalyptic visions. And so that's all I have. So Pastor Chris, are you there? Hi, right, Pastor Bates. Did I wear everybody out? And is everybody gone? <laughs> we everyone is still here from the beginning so i think we okay. added few actually right. from the beginning so it's good we, we have a couple of questions and yep. we'll just sent a message to uh, clint and jonah to ask if that answered their question um and i'm waiting to hear back from them let's see alexander popovsky had a question for you let me see alexander okay. let me unmute you and uh let me try to unmute you okay you're okay. unmuted alexander go ahead with your question well, thank you, first of all, Pastor, for sharing. It was insightful. It was a blessing. And so my, my question is, does any of the three views that you described uh, earlier on, some of these not as clear maybe passages, change the end time scenario for the biblical events that are yet future, such as some Sunday law, you know, the first and the second beast uh, roles in this final crisis? That's, that's one question. And the other question is, um, could it be that the, j just like you described that Egypt, uh, even though it represents atheistic power, was not a classical atheistic power in the sense they believe in a higher power, God's polytheistic, but yet they are described as atheistic because they reject the, the God of the Bible, the, the true God. So could it be that Islam could fit in the picture with atheistic uh, king of the South power um, in verses 40 and so forth, uh, but okay. being under that, not being the main player, but rather just being... Um, uh, under atheist, atheistic powers because they they don't uh, have the, the the belief in in the God of the Bible as as uh, in a correct uh, view or something. So sure. I don't know if that makes sense. Let me let me take your first question and then I'll I'll address your second question. As far as how how we interpret earlier verses, as I mentioned, does ripple into how we see future verses, and I think that um, in answer to your question, if if someone holds to the papacy atheist view of verse 40 or the papacy Islam view of verse 40, I don't see much of an effect on the end time scenario described in Daniel 11. I think it still will prove pretty close to events in Revelation as far as Sunday laws and all that. So if, if, if someone holds one of those two views, I don't see really it influencing 
our eschatology as far as our understanding of end time events. However, I do believe that if someone holds to the Eastern question view of Turkey and Napoleon, that, that certainly would alter our understanding of, of verses 40 to 45. Now, I have been, I have a, a really good friend of mine in my local congregation here who holds to Uriah Smith's view of Turkey. And he and I have a lot of friendly discussions on this. And we, we respect each other and don't, you know, we don't condemn each other for our views or anything like that. But, but he seems to think that the papacy is still the final power at the end of verse 45. And I'm still not quite sure how they're plugging that in because mm-hmm. it, it, would, it would make sense to me that the king of the north is the papacy right through the whole thing. I mean, that, it just seems reasonable to me. But I do think in response to your question, if, if, you, if, if we see a transition to atheistic France in verse 36, that would then create a triangular war in verse 40. And it would, it would in my opinion, alter our understanding of those verses and, and limit them to historical activities in the 19th century for the most part if that makes sense. Now, in response to your second question about Islam, um, I've thought about this. Um, one of the, I, I, this is, here's a personal opinion. This is my opinion, okay? I don't necessarily think that Islam could, could fall under the umbrella of the King of the South because Islam is not rebellious and defiant toward God. We could, we could argue that maybe they don't have a clearer picture of God, like we might have God, you know, they might have a different understanding of God, but they're certainly not, at least in their fundamental posture toward God, rebellious and defiant toward God, like atheists are, or like Pharaoh was. And so that's, that's a thought I have. I, I don't, I, now, now, I will say this, one of the things that, that Islam has in common with Catholicism is venerating the Virgin Mary. Mariology is a common ground that Rome has with the Islamic world. And it could be that through that spiritualistic medium, Rome could build an ecumenical bridge to the Muslim world, to the Islamic world, and, and create an ally with, with, Mos- with Muslims. Now, you know, some have wondered, and, and here's another question that's kind of spinning off what you're saying. Some have asked me, well, well, Mark, how, how is atheism going to be destroyed? I think this will take place when, when Satan counterfeits Christ's advent. You know, Ellen White talks in The Great Controversy about how this will be an overmastering delusion. And almost, with the exception of the 144,000, the whole world is going to be swept up in the net of that deception. I think it is very possible that when Satan appears as Christ and this deception just enraptures the whole world, I don't think there'll be an atheist left, to be honest with you. I think everybody on some level is going to embrace Christ, if you will. And then at that point, it comes down to either Sunday Christianity or Sabbath Christianity. And I think the Muslim world is going to, you know, at least those that, that persist in, 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 in following error will be swept up in that. There's a good possibility of that. So I don't know if that answered your question. I, I, I think... I think there's a role for Islam, but I don't, I don't necessarily see Islam in, as the king of the south or, or being part of the king of the south in verse 40, because I think the textual evidence seems to suggest that that, that power dealt the deadly wound at that point in time in the time of the end in 1798. And it just seems to me that, that atheistic France fits a little better. But again, you know, I want to follow the first principle I shared about interpretation. I don't want to be dogmatic about it, you know. I th- this seems to fit. 
but let's study some more and, and have some more discussions on this because I think we'll grow in our understanding as we keep dialoguing, if that makes sense. Yeah, so we had, a, we had a yeah. question from, I think this was Jonah or Clint, one of the two. I think he had two questions. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me let's see, unmute them there. Okay, here we go. Okay. All right, Jonah or Clint, yeah, Clint. go forward and ask your question. Uh, yeah, um, verse 40 talks about, um, you kind of cleared it up uh, the way that you believe, but I'm not sure why the King James Version talks about a king of the south pushes at him and the king of the north shall come against him. And you take him as south and the other him as north, making him become two. But could that him be one, making it three powers? So uh, hard to explain this question but I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there a three-way war there instead of a two-way war? Yes. Is the point. Uh, why well, does version okay. come with this kind of, uh, could be interpreted one way or the other? Uh, does the Greek come out that way? I mean, not Greek. It would be Hebrew. Sorry. Uh, how does the Hebrew read that would maybe clarify this? Yeah, I'm not. I have a working knowledge of the Hebrew alphabet but I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this. I, one thing I do know about the Hebrew language is when it comes to personal pronouns, they are not gender specific. They're, it's basically an it. Um, now, there's two issues I want to address on this question because this is an awesome question. And this is a question I've wrestled with. This goes back to one of the interpretive challenges that I mentioned at the beginning about personal pronouns. Daniel 11 is laden with these, with him and his and he, and it can be very thick to try to wade through all those personal pronouns. That's the first thing I want to mention. The second thing I want to mention is, again, this goes back to how we understand verse 36. Because if the king in verse 36 is the papacy, and the papacy is the king of the north, which I believe it is, that would predicate the conclusion that there's a two-way war in verse 40 because the him that the king of the south attacks is the papacy, the king of the north. And then in the next phrase, it says the king of the north responds against him. And the only conclusion we can, we can say is, is that that second him is the king of the south that just attacked him. So again, this goes back to Earlier interpretations of earlier verses have a ripple effect. And I, I just, I don't believe that we can really strongly conclude that there would be a third power if we take the position that the king of verse 36 is the papacy. That's just, that's my, my opinion. Yeah, that's but it's a good question because it, because when you, when you take a surface reading, it almost does seem like there are three powers there. You know, well, you, I can see where people could draw that conclusion. And that, and that 35, that there's a break there between 35 and 36. That's they start talking about a king, whereas before it's a lot of uh, a lot more pronouns there until 36. And we're also talking about other people, um, the people of God, I guess, are instructing many. And then all of a sudden we're back to a king, but it doesn't specify what king. So therefore, it's still a question. Well, it doesn't specify, and this is my opinion, again, it doesn't specify what king because it, it's, it's naturally describing the king that was described in the pre previous verses, I believe. 
You know, there's no clear transference to another empire. In the King James, it says, and the king, I think, doesn't it? Yes, and the king. Yeah, which, which, which suggests a continued discussion of the power that was just described. Right. It doesn't really show a, a transition into another empire. Yeah, it, it just, it's just a repetition of describing the power that was just talked about. I think it's good. That's to, how I read it. Yeah. Good to study the, the, the Hebrew to find out. But, but I, yeah, my wife is Filipino and they also don't have he and she. She always gets them mixed up whenever she's talking to me. So, yeah. you know, when it becomes it, we don't know. Also, that makes it a little more uh, yeah. real. But I, I've been wrestling with this too for a while. And, um, yeah, the, the way that it's, it's interesting, Ellen White says that these, um, the one, the way that Uriah Smith wrote it was correct. But then when I get to 40 through 45, I don't see that jiving really with how it comes to the very end in chapter 12. You know, that, right. Yeah, there seems to be a large gap there between the 19th century and, well, here, let, me, let me share an observation with you. Um, one of the things that I discovered, because um, quite often people who hold to the Turkey view say that that's the pioneer view. That was not the original pioneer view. The original pioneer view was that the papacy was the king of the north. And sometime between 1866 and 1871, Uriah Smith shifted his view to Turkey. That was the later pioneer view. Yeah. But, but James White never embraced it. And M.C. Wilcox wrote a book called The King of the North, um, which is, by the way, is very hard to find. And I have a PDF copy of that, Chris, so I'll send that to you, brother, if you want it. Because this is... Uh, and Ellen White's writings, the pioneer section, it's not there. I don't think that book's in there. Uh, I had to get it from the biblical, I had to get it from the, Ad, the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews. They have all that stuff archived, but, but I can send it to you, you know, just as easily because I have it on PDF. But my point is, is that I have four statements from Uriah Smith that were written between 1862 and 1865, where he espoused that the papacy was the final power in Daniel 11 the final manifestation of the King of the North. And yet sometime between 1866 and 71, in fact, I think his article, his latest article was in 1866. But anyway, the point is, is that some, some, sometime in those, that four to five year period, he shifted his view to the Turkey view. And that view held sway for a long period of time until, until eventually at the end of World War One, when the Turks didn't conquer Jerusalem and then I, I think their caliphate came to an end or some, some kind of historical transactions took place to where it just became apparent that really Turkey couldn't really fulfill Daniel 11, 40 to 45. And so it started getting Adventist interpreters um, rethinking this whole thing. And in fact, at the 1919 uh, general conference session, um, one of the topics that came up was the King of the North and Daniel 11. And and the debate was so heated between Turkey proponents and papacy proponents that A.G. Daniels had to shut down the discussion because they were getting really argumentative about it. So he closed it down. I mean, so, so there's been a shift since then to back to the Turkey view, which, which I believe is the original pioneer view. Yeah, that, that's where we have to be careful when Desire just says, you know, when the disciples started arguing which baptism was the right one. Right. Basically left. Yeah. He just left the conversation you know he, there was he doesn't christ doesn't do that so right if we become heated 
we've lost, right? Right, exactly. And that's why I've really appreciated my dialogue with other Daniel Levin interpreters like Tim Rosenberg and John Whitcomb and Norman McNulty and, and uh, Ed Nelson and Ken LeBrun and, some, and Kim Kerr and some of these other gentlemen that, that I've interacted with. We've just had a real good spirit of, of collegiality between us. We, we respect each other. We disagree, obviously, on certain things, but, but whenever we have a discussion, we just, we, we try to be very gentle and very, you know, just, just very kind and, and not argumentative when we share points of view. So it's, it's been a good experience. And so I agree with you. We have to have the right attitude because, you know, you can tell a lot about, about a person when you see their attitude, you know, so we need to make sure we have that Christ-like spirit. So thanks for answering that question. Clint, Clint, good questions. I got a couple other questions here I'd like to ask you. I, I know uh, sure. we have taken a bit of your afternoon, but got a couple more. Do you have time for just a couple more questions? Yeah, I, you know, brother, let me tell you, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, my son's been home. So I've been using the word dude a lot. So I apologize. Pastor, um, I, I've got as much time as you want. I, I, I just hope I haven't been like the little horn and worn out the saints this afternoon. I just, I'm hoping that, that I haven't just cause everybody to go, wow, man, this is just too much, you know? This so is great. yeah, I'll answer as many as you want. Dig in a study. You know, this is good. I, I probably have about another 10 minutes and then I'm going to have to have to run. But here's the, here, I had two sure. questions that came in along the lines of between 1140 and 41, there, there seemed to be a big gap between, uh, you know, 1798 and the close of probation. So they, they felt like that was a, a big time frame. Can you speak to that? Well, I believe, I personally believe we're, historically, we're right between this, we're, we're in the second part of verse 40, and we're right on the, the verge of the first part of 41. Because you have to remember that when the papacy received its deadly wound in 1798, it's been gradually healing from that wound since then. And, and I don't believe the wound of the papacy will fully heal until it regains civil power once again, through the vehicle of Sunday legislation. That was and the so, yeah, there, is, there, there is a historical gap, but I believe that that when the papacy enters the glorious land, this is apocalyptic language to describe control of conscience, control of global Christianity again through the avenue of Sunday laws. I wish we had more time to get into that, but you know, I maybe that can be a topic of another study at some point. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, so I, you know, I mean, you know, there are historical gaps in certain places, I guess, uh, but we're covering a vast expanse of history too, and so. You know, God has to, I think, I think there are times when, you know, for example, in Daniel 2, the divided kingdoms, you know, the, the feet of iron and clay, you know, that took place when Rome fell in 476, and we've been in a divided condition ever since then, and so there seems to be a long gap between that and the coming of the stone, which destroys the image. So there are times, I think, in prophecies where we do see historical gaps, but, but I think we're on solid ground when we stick with the consistency of, this, of Daniel 11 with Daniel's prior visions. Okay, so there's a question from Laura Lucas. Laura, I have unmuted you so that you can uh, can ask him your question about the vandals. Yeah, you were talking about the uh, the ship wars between the vandals, but it seemed you were talking about that concurrent with the Dark Ages. However, when I look up the Vandalic War, it was a full thousand years before the Reformation. So I'm trying to understand that um, time. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. I, I my mind spins out of control sometimes and I'm sorry. Um, well, I, again, I, I personally see verse 30 and what you're, what you're referencing is the first part of verse 30, which is the, 
the ships of Cyprus come against him, which I believe is imperial Rome. I believe this describes a, a period of time where the imperial Roman Empire was stressed through invasions by tribal peoples from Northern Europe. And if you study history, you know this. I mean, Rome's north, northern and eastern borders were the Rhine-Danube rivers, and there were Germanic peoples like the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and all these different countries who were on those borders. And when the Huns invaded from the Asian steppe, they, they pressured these peoples to, to go over the Roman borders and just basically swallow up the Roman Empire through invasions. And, and so what I see in the first part of verse 30 is I see these ships of Cyprus as being an apocalyptic term to describe all these invasions that swallowed up the Western Roman Empire. And the most notable, I believe, was the Vandal Naval Empire because that empire ravaged the Western Empire. And when the empire collapsed in 476, by 538, the papacy stepped into that vacuum. And so I see, you know, verse, verses 30 and 31 as describing the collapse of Imperial Rome through those Germanic invasions, most notably of which are the Vandal Naval Empire, and then the rise of the papacy in that vacuum that was created with the fall of Rome. And so, so I don't, and I don't think we hit the Reformation until verse 32, if that makes sense. So, wow, this picture just kind of went crazy on me here for a second. I just, I just changed it so I could see everyone okay. raising their yeah. hand. Okay. Yeah. okay, go ahead. So I don't know if that makes sense. Um, you know, again, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I'll have to go back and play this again to see, but I, I don't know that I mentioned the Reformation in verse 30, but definitely verses 30 and 31 describe the collapse of the Imperial Roman Empire, the rise of the Papal Roman Empire, and then how that empire would dominate during the Dark Ages from that point forward. And so that was kind of what I was aiming at in my presentation. I don't know if that clarified that, Pastor Chris. Laura, did that clarify for you? I'm trying to unmute you so that you can. That makes more sense from where you're coming from. Yeah, and if you look at uh, our Bible commentary, um, Bible commentary volume four, page 873, makes a comment on that, on how the, the phrase ships of Cyprus seems to be an apocalyptic phrase that discusses the barbarian invasions of the Roman Empire that caused its collapse. So that's another reference you can look at. And I probably, I probably should update my PowerPoint and put that reference on there. Um, so 4 BC 873 might be a good reference to look at on that. So, but again, you know, I'm not being dogmatic. It's just, this is a, this is a possibility, you know, a strong possibility that we can look at. Well, I, I've appreciated the dialogue today, just so that everyone knows that this has been recorded and we'll try to get it available on our website or something. I'll have to talk with Brandon about how to do that. And, uh, you know, if you'd like to look at it later, go through his notes. And Pastor Bates, any of those information that you want to share with me, send them on. Those that would like a copy of that, just either send me a text or message, make, make a, send me a message in chat here or an email. Just let me know that you'd like those and I'll send those on to you. Some of you are let me know and, and I'll make sure you get those.